Let's get educated. That's why we're here, to bring you the stories impacting K-12 classrooms and college campuses. It's time for a little education. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. I am Katie Patrick, joined by Mr. Dave Ifiorazzo. Yes. And it's the end of the week, almost. <sighs> it's the end of the week for us here, so we made it. I hope you're doing great, too. Now, just as a reminder that if you want to support the work of this show or any of our other programs, please consider getting yourself some swag. Visit freedomproject.com store and get yourself a mug. Sip that coffee or that hot cocoa. Or whatever else. You can put water in it, too. I, you, you know what? I'm not judging you. Anyway, you can also get a shirt. Maybe you want to get a little hoodie. Stay warm there. Again, that's freedomproject.com slash store. Oh. Um, all right, friends. It's once again that special time to grab your cappuccino with your educated mugs. And Alex Newman is here to uh, let us know what story he has to share this week. Alex, hello. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Uh, so, yeah, uh, big news out of Idaho. Uh, the school choice bill, the voucher bill, has failed there. Um, this would have given basically almost $6,000 of tax money per student uh, for homeschoolers and for children in private schools. But uh, it went down in flames in the state Senate um, recently. Uh, it went down uh, by a vote of 12 to 23 um, pretty serious uh, defeat there in the state Senate. Um, it was a coalition of Republicans and Democrats that stopped it, um, obviously for, for very different reasons. Um, opponents cited uh, accountability, a lack of accountability in the bill, which is, uh, of course, a big problem that a lot of homeschoolers have with the, the voucher program, too, is that, uh, you know, once the money comes, then they're going to want accountability. They're going to want to know what we're doing, what, you know, what are we learning, et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually they'll want to control it. Um, so the bill, uh, Senate Bill 1038, would have uh, basically made every school-aged child in the state uh, who's not in a public school or who plans to leave a, a traditional public school eligible for these vouchers. Uh, if the family was going to choose homeschooling or private schooling, they were uh, they would get what's called a Freedom in Education Savings Account, uh, and then the, that money would be, I guess, diverted from the local school district, from the local government brainwash camp, into uh, the the student's choice or the family's choice, whether that be private or, or homeschool. Uh, but uh, obviously, the Democrats were upset by this. You know, the Democrats want to preserve the monopoly of the indoctrination system. Uh, they want to keep those kids trapped there forever, right? Uh, with more and more indoctrination, more and more money for their union member supporters who are uh, operating within the school system. And uh, they insisted that uh, this would basically be devastating to local public schools. Uh, the estimates of the people who were putting this together said not that many kids would probably take it. It wouldn't have been that bad. But uh, anyways, that's what the Democrats said. But of course, Democrats don't have a lot of political power in Idaho, at least not as, as Democrats. A lot of them have to run as Republicans um, to be able to get elected there. Uh, same in, in many of the Western states like Wyoming. Uh, but then there was the other side of the aisle that was also really opposed to this. Conservative critics, including a lot of the homeschool leadership there, uh, they were concerned that uh, government funding of homeschooling or private schools would lead almost inevitably to government regulation and then ultimately control. Uh, I reached out to uh, Abby Rinella, uh, she's a former public school teacher. She is a leader of the homeschool community there. She's on the board of Homeschool Idaho, which is their, their homeschool group there in the state. Uh, she's also a local director for her local homeschool group. 
And uh, she's one of the people who was fighting this. And uh, what she said is basically, uh, you know, we already have school choice in Idaho. We could just send our kids to a public school, a private school, a, a home school. Um, and, you know, we don't need uh, government funding for our choices. Uh, once and her, to quote her exactly, she said, once all choices are funded by the government, we ultimately lose choice. Uh, and, and of course, that is what has happened in other countries as well, uh, places like Sweden and Australia and, and even some of the Canadian provinces. Once the government started funding the uh, choices, they all became basically um, government choices, right? They had to teach the LGBT stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so uh, Renella and, and many others uh, in the homeschool leadership there in Idaho fought back against this. She said, never is freedom funded by the government because the government regulates that which, it's, which it funds. Uh, ESAs are the Trojan horse, she said, into educational freedom and school choice. Uh, I also reached out to one of the bill's sponsors, uh, Senator Tammy Nichols, who I've known for many years, a wonderful, wonderful lady. Uh, I actually just had her on my program for the um, for a, a, a TV show I do. Uh, she introduced a bill to criminalize the COVID vaccines because uh, nobody can give informed consent. So uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Senator Nichols. But uh, this bill uh, what she said, uh, she she kind of rejected these accusations uh, about uh, accountability that the critics raised. Uh, she said, first of all, you know, um, w parents are accountable for the the well-being, the learning, and uh, uh, et cetera of their children. Uh, the government doesn't need to regulate that. And she also, you know, she expressed concerns about the possibility that government might regulate homeschoolers at some point in the future. So e even the people promoting this idea uh, understand that there is a threat that government may eventually come after uh, homeschoolers and and private schools. Um, she she did. Did point out that uh, there is already a lot of financial accountability here, right? Uh, that it, you could be prosecuted if you misuse the money. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, safeguards built into it that way. But um, she pointed out, and I think very correctly here, that the public school system has no accountability, right? Uh, this is evident, she said, in our current testing numbers. We see students that are failing in areas like reading and math. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the government's own data shows that most government school students across America are not proficient in anything. Uh, and um, as she pointed out as well, government schools are thoroughly lacking in financial accountability. We spend more and more money and get worse and worse results. Um, but she did point out, you know, homeschoolers are, are right to be fearful of government intervention. Um, but she pointed out that this bill uh, actually had a section that would, uh, in her view, uh, strengthen uh, freedom for homeschoolers. It says uh, this chapter does not permit any government agency to exercise control or supervision over any non-public school or homeschooling. Uh, but, you know, still uh, opponents um, said, you know, what about a, a rogue court decision? What about regulators, et cetera? Uh, so, you know, I, I'm thrilled that the debate is now moving in this direction, right? How do we get kids out of government schools? Um, you know, this is a, a good question for Americans to be considering right now, because we got to get the kids out of government schools, but we also need to be very careful, you know, with, with government money come strings, with the shekels come the shackles, as uh, E. Ray Moore says. So uh, glad to see the debate shifting in this direction, but, uh, you know, we always have to keep uh, educational freedom and live liberty uh, in, in sight because um, once lost, it will never come back. The latest news from Gallup is the number of people identifying as LGBT has doubled in the last 10 years. Surprise, surprise. And those under 25 are driving the numbers. That's right. Generation Z is the most programmed, some would say brainwashed, in history. It's been over a half-century-long effort to deceive American youth, deconstruct morality, destroy family values, along with Judeo-Christian influence, groom school children, redefine truth, and train up an army of godless, rebellious young people. I'm David Fiorazzo, and this is Christ and Culture.
In my great-grandparents' generation, I wonder what percentage of Americans identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. I think we can all guess, with great accuracy, almost zero. But according to a new Gallup poll, 7.2% of U.S. adults identify as LGBTQ today. In 2012, Gallup began reporting on LGBT identification, and the number was 3.5% of Americans. Now, there are a number of factors involved here, including Hollywood, the liberal media, the Antichrist education system, pushers of DEI and wokeness, leftist politicians, the 2015 SCOTUS decision on gay marriage, in quotes, big tech, social media, but few reports seem to analyze the massive influence on kids by their friends. Author and conservative talk show host Dennis Prager believes it's obvious that today's young adults have been deeply influenced by their peers. He said, the chances are good for your son or daughter to identify as LGBT, especially if they go to a big city public school. And from recent reports, small town schools aren't far behind. Same ideology, same teachers union, same media messaging different town and population, Dennis Prager adds this, quote, what the left is doing to this country is destroying it. It's as simple as that. And if you vote for the Democrat Party, you are participating in the destruction of the country and the consequences to your children and grandchildren, end quote. Now, a key takeaway from the new poll is the growing presence of Generation Z when it comes to embracing new identities. It's not a newsflash to say Gen Z is more likely than any other age group or generation in history to identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or something other than heterosexual. Gallup also showed only 75% of Gen Z respondents called themselves straight or heterosexual, compared to 92% of older adult Americans. Now, Gen Z includes those adults born between 1997 and 2004. In this age group, nearly one in five, or almost 20%, uh, members consider themselves part of the LGBT community, with 13% describing themselves as bisexual. What's really sobering is the fact the proportion of all Americans who identify as LGBT can be expected to grow. Why? Younger generations will make up a larger share of the total U.S. population of adults. Now, the last couple of generations in particular have generally conformed to secular culture. We are taught to reject, they were taught to reject God, and they bought the lie of evolution, which is why we now see Moral relativism and postmodernism rule the day. Writing at the Christian Post, Ryan Foley states, The trans-identified population has become a significant focus in American public policy as states take measures to require student-athletes to compete on sports teams that correspond with their biological sex and ban the genital mutilation of minors with gender dysphoria. These are things most of us never imagined having to legislate to protect biological facts, science, 
and truth. Yet, here we are. But the feelings of young people today and philosophies of this world and facts, keeping it all in perspective, those identifying as queer, asexual, pansexual, or an other category within the LGBT movement account for just 0.1% of the overall U.S. population. Now, you may be saying to yourself, wait, that's all? 0.1? Well, as I reported just a few months ago, the whole agenda dominates culture, but the numbers don't add up. Be reminded how important it is to understand the ignored and overlooked fact that according to a recent U.S. census, same-sex married couples, for example, only consist of 0.9% of American households. Who needs higher numbers when you have such widespread influence and effective propaganda like the left does? They cannot reproduce, so they must recruit. The left has far greater access to children than ever before in history. Our part is to preach Jesus, to understand the times, and expose evil, especially when it is being called good. God bless you and keep speaking the truth about things that matter. Today's show is sponsored by our friends at MyPillow. Save up to 66% on pristine quality bedding towels, slippers, signature pillows, and much more when you use the code EDUCATED. That's E-D-U-C-A-T-E-D, EDUCATED. Support this show and a great American company. If the sublime beauty of the Sistine Chapel was the only achievement of Michelangelo Buonarroti's career, then this genius of the Italian Renaissance would still be able to claim a place among the greatest artists in history. But once we consider his entire artistic output, there is no doubt about the importance of this master sculptor, painter, architect, and poet. Born on March 6, 1475, Michelangelo di Lodovico Buonarroti Simoni was born to Ludovico di Leonardo Buonarroti and Francesca di Neri Buonarroti in the small village of Caprizi, which was part of the Florentine Republic in modern-day Tuscany in Italy. As an infant, Michelangelo's wet nurse was married to a stonecutter, an association that perhaps sparked Michelangelo's interest in sculpting. Later in life, Michelangelo was fond of remarking that he drank in marble dust within his nanny's milk. Michelangelo's mother died when he was just six years old, leaving his father to care for five young sons, including a newborn. The family made do, though they were far from wealthy. Sundays were spent at Mass in the Church of Santa Croce in Florence. During Mass, young Michelangelo had the opportunity to gaze up at the artwork and frescoes of Donatello and Giotto, drawing inspiration from their beauty and religious subject matter. When Michelangelo's father remarried in 1485, the new stepmother brought money with her, allowing Michelangelo to attend Latin school, where he learned reading, writing, and mathematics. But these subjects took a back seat to his growing interest in art. After numerous entreaties, Michelangelo's father relented after his son demonstrated that his youthful artistic talent 
was worth pursuing, and 12-year-old Michelangelo was apprenticed to Ghirlandio, a master painter who oversaw the most thriving artistic workshop in Florence. Along with Michelangelo's obvious skills came pride, impatience, and a disdain for authority. After two years as an apprentice painter, Michelangelo was expelled at the age of 14 and branded a know-it-all who could not be taught. This newfound freedom allowed Michelangelo to pursue his first love, sculpture, and he found patronage in the house of the powerful Medici, a family known across Italy for supporting artists. By the age of 17, his time with the Medici produced two promising relief sculptures, the Battle of the Centaurs and the Madonna of the Stairs. Toward the end of the 15th century, he moved to Rome, where he sculpted the Pieta, housed today in St. Peter's Basilica. This famous sculpture depicts the dead body of the crucified Christ, laying across the lap of his mother Mary, who cradles her son with maternal tenderness. A hallmark of Michelangelo's statues was an uncanny ability to make his marble subjects seem to breathe, to capture with intense realism the bone and muscles under the alabaster skin. This skill Michelangelo learned in part from dissecting human bodies in his spare time, a practice that made him especially attentive to the structure of human form. The genius of this approach to sculpting and painting human bodies is most evident in his signature sculpture, the Statue of David, a monumental 14-foot nude statue of the Old Testament shepherd boy who slayed the giant Goliath and became King David. The statue took three years to finish and is considered the most lifelike and inspiring model of human form ever carved out of marble. Michelangelo did not particularly enjoy painting. He was a sculptor through and through. Nevertheless, when Pope Julius II ordered him to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, it was not a command that he dared to ignore. Between 1508 and 1512, Michelangelo meticulously painted more than 5,000 square feet of ceiling, including 300-plus figures taken from nine scenes in the book of Genesis. The entire design centered around the creation of Adam, featuring the hand of God reaching out to touch the hand of Adam in the act of creation. In his later years, Michelangelo continued working on sculptural projects and writing moving poetry, which included a poem describing the physical and psychological agony of painting the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo worked right up to the end of his long life, including an important architectural commission to erect the dome of St. Peter's Church in Rome, to this day the tallest dome of its kind in the world. Michelangelo died on February 18, 1564, at the age of 88. According to his final wish, he was buried at the Basilica of Santa Croce in his hometown of Florence. The variety and excellence of his artistic output, from sculpture to painting to poetry to architecture, was unparalleled. The legacy of Michelangelo is as profound and enduring as any artist in history. As the master himself said, many believe, and I believe, that I have been designated for this work by God. In spite of my old age, I do not want to give it up. I work out of love for God, and I put all my hope in Him. If you have a smartphone, tablet, Roku, or Apple TV, consider downloading the Freedom Project media app. It's 100% free and includes all of our weekly shows, plus lecture series, archive programs, and award-winning animated videos for families like the Presidential Minute, Battles of America, and Heroes of the West. 
Don't rely on the social media giants to keep you informed. Simply download the Freedom Project media app from your app store and allow notifications. And we'll let you know when a new video is ready. All right. Well, as many of you may know, or maybe you don't know, I'm a bit of a American history buff over here. And it turns out that the <laughs> Lincoln Memorial, you know, that monument that's in Washington, D.C., and it's, it was designed and dedicated to our nation's 16th president and constructed constructed more than 100 years ago in our nation's capital, is getting a little, a little addition to it. So let's take a little look-see. A new immersive 15,000 square foot museum is coming to Washington, D.C. under the Lincoln Memorial. That allows visitors to look into the undercroft, the unfinished space that, that holds up the Lincoln Memorial as people know it. The nearly $69 million project will allow visitors to learn about the site's construction history and significant historical events. Give them a chance to learn a little bit more about the creation of the memorial and most importantly, the meanings that it's taken on over time. The goal is to also preserve the original architecture under the memorial. The project received funding from multiple donors, including the National Park Foundation. We wanted to, and our donors wanted to provide the visitors of this, of this great monument with an excellent experience. And that wasn't something that the government funding was likely to be able to achieve on its own. The renovation will be the largest performed on the monument since it was completed in 1922. Now, this is a project that's been talked about for decades, and we're finally have found a way to move it forward. For visitors, maintaining the original architecture is important. It's a very tough balance to both preserve and to refurbish, to you know, maintain the old with the new, but that sounds like a good way to go about it. The memorial will remain open during the construction, which will start in March and is expected to finish by 2026 for the 250th anniversary of American independence. Wow, interesting. Now, as they said, the Lincoln Memorial was originally unveiled in 1922. It has 36 columns representing the 36 states at the time that were in the Union. And that was at the time of Lincoln's assassination, of course, in 1865. The 15,000 square foot remodel is expected to cost $69 million and is slated to be completed in 2026, just in time for the country's 250th birthday, if we make it that far. In the world and as America. And if we... Aww. Seriously, 2026? Yeah, that's a good point. That, three years. Hey, a it, lot can happen. Since 2020, we what know how long three years What has happened since 2020? Can, anything? Anything? It can feel... Anything? Three years can feel like decades. <laughs> We've learned from 2020, right? No, so, this is true. This is true. Yeah, yeah this is going to be very exciting, though, as someone who's a, a nerd. Uh, I very much look forward to doing... Going to this and seeing it and, and reading everything on that they post on the signs because when I go to the museums I'm that person who reads the things and you actually do? learns the information yeah I went to well I've been to DC several times but I've been to other museums like you know around the nation and stuff such and my husband just was like come he's, on just get give me the pictures he'll, he's look, like, he'll look at the he's pictures he's been done for like 20 minutes and I'm like still on You're slide reading. one like Ooh, look at this. <laughs> yeah so I love it I'm excited for it cool I guess that's going to wrap it up for this week of Educated. David, I learned several different things this week. Uh, some good, some bad, and some, well, I guess disturbing. everything in between. Yeah, disturbing. Everything Dis in between. Yeah, disturbing about this generation. But uh, yeah, I'm good, glad to see some good stories out there too. But uh, for Katie and myself, thank you very much for watching, listening, and supporting the show. And until next week, stay educated, America.